Welcome to a new episode of Le Wimbleck Show, hosted in Stockholm, Sweden today. As always, the show is brought to you by Spriker Depth and Bright. And today we are welcoming Asket, a new fashion brand uh, that is very much betting on the slow fashion trend in the industry. Um, August, the founder, joins us, telling us about the background and also about the plans forward. Alexander, what did you think about the episode? I really like the idea of uh, the Asket uh, business model and really it's cool to build sustainable fashion. The thing that surprised me most, so they're selling t-shirts for 35 euros and uh, sweatshirts for 80 euros. And even though one could think this is a decent pricing point, um, um, they don't earn enough money to uh, to sell those products via wholesale. So mm -hmm. they are really relying on direct to consumer. Um, they do have a couple of ideas how to solve um, uh, this riddle. Uh, uh, but I let it to August to explain it to you. So have fun with the podcast. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Le Wimlex podcast, um, another episode that we air from Stockholm today with um, a very special guest that I've known for a very long time, um, August from Asket, a Swedish fashion business found here locally in Stockholm in Sweden. Um, August, you and I know, know each other very well. Um, our listeners don't know you at all. Please introduce yourself. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. Uh, yeah, so my name is uh, August Parbringias, and um, I am one of the two co-founders of Asket, uh, which is a online-only direct-to-consumer uh, slow fashion brand, essentially. Um, paradoxically, um, our goal is to have more people buy fewer items. So we actually want you to consume less and uh, in a more considered manner. Um, yeah, prior to Asket, uh, I studied business here in Stockholm at uh, Stockholm School of Economics, um, spent a few years at uh, Klarna um, back in the day uh, where we got to know each other, right? And um, uh, that was kind of my segue into e-commerce, uh, after which um, I did some work in management consulting, but eventually together with my co-founder circled back to the um, the idea of starting Asket. Is it Asket or Asket? Or is it a difference between English and Swedish? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a difference between English and Swedish, actually. So um, uh, we've sort of grown accustomed to saying Asket in English. Um, we only communicate in English uh, one language um, globally, uh, and it's become Asket there. In Swedish, it is Asket, though, mm -hmm. uh, as the, the word um, does mean something in Swedish. Um, and in a few other languages, you have the word ascetic in English or um, Asket or Askese in, in German, for instance. Uh, which refers to someone or a practice that uh, refrains from excessive material indulgences, basically, and focuses on the inner values and removing uh, what doesn't add value uh, to life uh, in general and focusing on what actually uh, does. Mm -hmm. I really want to hear more about the whole concept, um, but I do know that you have a pretty special founding story um, with the way that you started the business um, because it was the Kickstarter campaign. That's true, yeah. yeah. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, we don't talk about it all too much nowadays, actually, because we are in the um, sort of the premium apparel segment, if you look at it um, objectively, um, and we feel that um, Kickstarter is a fantastic platform, um, but it does have a certain um, vibe to it that is more within sort of the tech and, and gadget spectrum. So... Um, uh, for us, it was a fantastic starting point. Um, and essentially, it began with, you know, Jacob and myself having the idea of doing something about our frustration uh, about our wardrobes. We have wardrobes that are, in general, statistically speaking, uh, in the Western world, 
overfilled. They are bursting with clothing, uh, hundreds of pieces, but on average, we only use maybe, you know, 20 or 30% of those frequently. Um, and uh, those pieces that we actually use are the ones that we, you know, we really love uh, and use uh, and care for the most. And what they have in common is that there's no compromise. The fit is perfect. Uh, the quality is nice. Uh, the colors are timeless and uh, they're easy to take care of. Uh, whereas the rest of the stuff is, you know, I think everyone can identify with uh, impulse buying. You buy something on sale. It was a fantastic brand. It was, you know, Burberry or Chanel or Prada, but you got it three sizes too big. Uh, but you wanted to have it anyways. Uh, you buy something that is trendy and it goes out of trend. You buy something for an occasion, poor quality, and it wears out. Um, you end up buying a lot of stuff on impulse, and that's what the whole fashion industry is geared on. So um, our starting point was to um, basically change the whole fundament of the fashion business model um, based on two cornerstones. One, a permanent collection as opposed to seasonal collections. Instead of driving growth through novelty and constant renewal and convincing you that your sweater is no longer good to wear um, when it's perfectly fine. We uh, we don't drive growth uh, in that sense. And then the second pillar being a direct-to-consumer model, which allows us to slash the entire wholesale margin, give that back to the customer. Um, and, and with those two pillars in mind, we, we are able to work very, very differently um, than um, the, the traditional fashion brand, basically. So to test this out, to get back to the Kickstarter question, sorry for the <laughs> long, uh, long sort of circumvention. Um, we, uh, we didn't have any money, right? We were studying our master's degree um, and started this out of business school and uh, needed to somehow test the concept and see, you know, if people felt the same way, if people felt that it was hard to find perfectly fitting, um, high quality pieces, timeless pieces at a decent price. And so we decided to try to pitch this on Kickstarter. And uh, the response was uh, tremendous. Um, so saying that sounds like it just happened. Uh, when was it? This was in 2015. Sorry. So in, in April 2015, we, we launched our Kickstarter campaign. And we um, yeah, we did a ton of prep work, a ton of research to uh, you know reach out to friends, called colleagues, whatnot to sort of build a whole newsletter. Not very GDPR at the time, but there was no GDPR, so uh, it was fine, <laughs> I guess. Uh, we scratched, scraped LinkedIn and Facebook for email addresses, and and just told everyone that we were starting uh, our business and fulfilling our dream. Um, and we had some help to to create a video uh, with our founding story, basically. Um, I just opened the Kickstarter campaign and saying here you, you you were seeking like ten thousand uh, euro and exactly. you've reached the goal of uh, forty five thousand euro from exactly. like almost seven hundred people supporting you. Exactly. Yeah. Where did these seven hundred people came from? All over the world or Sweden mainly? Uh, all over the world, actually. So we decided to. I mean, Kickstarter is has a large share of the audience in North America, uh, and we decided to sell all over the world. We didn't want to restrict ourselves. We really wanted mm -hmm. to see this as a test of all aspects of the business model. First of all, um, you know, are people interested in our proposition mm -hmm. in our USPs? Second of all, where do people come from that are interested in this proposition? And then after that, um, uh, what since uh, what would they buy among our colors and among our sizes that we offered? Since one of the founding differentiators is that we have um, an extended size system. So for the T-shirt, we have 15 sizes instead of five. Uh, the idea is that we have XS to XL, but every size gets three lengths. So it becomes like a matrix of sizes where, you know, if you're tall and skinny, You might uh, fall in between medium and long, a, lo uh, a medium and large. A large is going to be like a nightgown and a medium is going to be like a crop top. So you choose the <laughs> medium long uh, with us then. 
So introducing a new size system, there's no data, uh, no third-party data that you can access to uh, estimate that. So the Kickstarter campaign also helped us to actually uh, start our forecasting for our own uh, proprietary size system. Uh, so it really it validated the um, the the general uh, concept, the pitch, um, the the markets or potential markets, and uh, helped us get the initial data going for uh, to to optimize purchasing. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And and like since 2015, can you give us a rough ballpark how the business developed since then? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so this was really the the start. We started with one product, the T-shirt, and our idea was to continue um, building our permanent collection slowly, one garment at a time, mm-hmm. essentially. So um, in these past years, we've launched um, 28 garments, um, and each garment in maybe three, four colors. We haven't removed a single item or not even a single color from our collection in those four years, which speaks volumes of the permanent collection concept. If you look at a normal fashion business, within four years, you'll have replaced your inventory you know, multiple times several over, times several over. times yeah. over. You will have wasted things. You'll have dead stock that you've sold out. You'll have burnt stuff, landfilled things. Uh, we haven't replaced a single piece of uh, a single style, actually. So we've gradually built our permanent collection, and I think um, one of the more significant um, uh, pivots that we've had, I think, uh, is that or we've actually stuck to what we wanted to do. We wanted to create perfect clothing, zero compromise garments, and we've stuck with that. But we pretty early on, we realized that in order to explain that you're getting a 90-euro T-shirt or a 600-euro cashmere sweater made in the same factory as Prada, um, to our customers without having to say that it's made in the same factory as Prada. You know, how do you do that when you're direct-to-consumer and online only? You have no physical stores. And so um, we decided to open up our factories, show our factories, and show our pricing model to justify the quality that you're getting and, and manifest quality, which is something tactile, digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we did that, we realized that, you know, we wanted to go further in transparency. We saw that a T-shirt is not made in one factory. It's just one factory that sews. And then behind that factory, you have a factory that knits the fabric. Behind that, you have one that dyes the fabric. Behind that, it's the yarn is spun. Uh, the cotton is cleaned. You know, it is extremely complex. And we were, you know, absolutely um, awestruck by the complexity of the fashion industry, how much work goes into creating clothing. And how little we know about it as consumers and how little we respect our clothing, treating it as disposables with no regard to the resources that went into creating it, the impact that it's had and the people that have been in the process of making this uh, uh, garment. So along the way, we realized that, yes, we are still creating, you know, in our idea, perfect clothing, the best possible garments out there, free of compromise. But the more important and the more interesting thing was actually to use our business model and our brand uh, as a way to educate the consumer about the impacts of our uh, apparel uh, consumption habits and have people reappreciate clothing for what it is, investments, the way that you know, our grandparents would do it back in the day. Um, so we've pivoted into you know, a, a very purpose-driven company. Um, we're still product-driven and product nerds, and the garments are our means to change people and influence people's consumption habits. You know, literally, if you have a piece of clothing that will outlast your entire wardrobe, you won't be buying new clothing, right? Um, So we've gone from product-centric to mission-driven with the products being our our, our vehicle. Back back to the ballpark question. Sorry. (laughs) Where where did that 
journey lead you in terms of like how many people are working for you, how many sweatshirts, and I've just opened your website and it, I think it's an interesting concept uh, selling via size and length. Cool. Um, and uh, 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 but, but is it like already like a sustainable business from a business model perspective? Right. So um, we were actually profitable in the first year, um, but we were heavily bootstrapped. It was you know the founder, my co-founder, myself. Um, And, uh, you know, we didn't take any salaries. We did everything, you know, mm -hmm. maximizing the 24 hours of the day, really. Um, and uh, since then, we've kind of had a, a growth trajectory that has been very good. So we've been growing by over 100% per year. I think our average CAGR up until last year was 210%. Mm -hmm. um, and we've gone from roughly um, 100,000 euros in gross merchandise sales to um, 7 million euros of cross merchandise sales last year, um, in, in 2019. Uh, and we're right now we're 12 people, uh, full time, uh, here in Stockholm in a little office and, and, and we have a studio and a workshop for our product team and, and also a little showroom for our customers. And, and where do you sell directly via your website or via other online shops? Exactly. No. So we've stuck to our initial pillars, which was to build a direct to consumer model because uh, the two flaws, the two inherent flaws in the fashion uh, industry are wholesale as a distribution model, because you're inflating prices uh, in order to have, you know, reach volume and reach, but you're making it impossible for people to actually buy high quality because it's unattainable price wise. And the second issue is the, um, you know, the seasonal collections, which makes us buy too much clothing, essentially. And we stuck to those, too. So uh, we're still selling only via askit.com, uh, the same price philosophy as, uh, as before. And geographically, um, you'll find our customers uh, almost in the same um, sort of regions as our Kickstarter. We were a bit skewed towards the United States back then. Uh, right now, Germany is actually our biggest market at about 35%. And just understand, like, your your uh, um, uh, your view on wholesale. Um, I am just have opened the uh, the T-shirt uh, uh, um, collection here, and you're asking, like, 35 euro for a T-shirt. Yeah. And you're essentially saying that you're not able to sell the T-shirt for, like, 15 euros to a, a Pieten Kloppenburg or to Zalando because that's what they would ask you so that they can sell it then for exactly. 35 or 40 uh, exactly. because your margin is too thin exactly our margin is too thin so essentially what we're doing is that we'll if we were working in a wholesale model we would be selling at this price 35 euros that we're selling to you now to peak and kloppenburg or to ah, okay. uh, zalando or whatnot and zalando in turn would uh, you know mark that up by two and a half to three x so you'd end up paying around 90 euros for that t-shirt so essentially we're giving uh, we're selling our, our our garments at wholesale prices to our customers um, uh, so essentially sacrificing that markup that you will have if you're a if you have a monobrand store if you have you know Stella McCartney does you know sells in wholesale but in stellamccartney.com or in their stores they'll actually recoup that whole you know 3x Uh, 3x markup. Yeah, but the difference to like the new direct to consumer brands evolving uh, around the globe, um, purely selling on their own uh, uh, Shopify shops, yeah. uh, uh, like the, um, the Kardashian family. Yeah. Uh, their margin is super high. Yeah. When exactly. they sell like lipstick for like 10 euros a lipstick, exactly. they have like 9 euro uh, product margin plus taxes, of course. And you're saying your margin is super low. But um, the question here for me still, um, still stays is that um, I understand that wholesale usually gives you even on a global level um, some reach to yeah. new customers and I understand where you're coming from from like this Kickstarter uh, uh, um, corner um, but I would assume this kind of 
super sustainable uh, fashion, is, uh, the story is worrying out uh, over the way. So mm -hmm. at some point, and now you have four years after your initial start on Kickstart, uh, um, it's not good enough, not sticky anymore mm -hmm. to uh, attract new customers right. to your website. Plus, and that is the other interesting question I would have is, as your products are uh, so good, mm. um, you're kind of uh, uh, um, working against the buying frequency um, KPI every right. e-commerce business yeah. would, would aim for. Yeah. Please buy again, yeah. buy more. You're yeah. saying only buy once exactly. and buy less. Uh, those are like these two kind of um, uh, vectors yeah. are working against you yeah. from my point of view. No, exactly. We, we haven't really made it easier for ourselves uh, the way we uh, designed this business model. Um, so I guess, first of all, to address the wholesale question, uh, yes, wholesale gives you reach and, and volume. Um, but um, since our products are seemingly, you know, to the surface, simple, um, but packed with, you know, a ton of ingenuity and engineering and, and smartness in the product design, the construction, uh, textile engineering, to, you know, achieve a plain white T-shirt that doesn't maybe look like much except that the fit is great, uh, that will last for five years. It will last for 300 wears. Uh, we are measuring this empirically with our customers. It'll outshine. And, 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 a, and a standard Fruit of the Loom T-shirt, the cheapest quality, how much wears would that go? So statistically in, in Sweden, um, there are statistics that suggest that a normal T-shirt is worn 30 times. And that is very, very high. Uh, if you look at global statistics, wow. uh, a piece of clothing uh, will be worn on average as, as few as seven times, actually. Really? That's um, so low. I would have thought it was much higher. No, but, and both because of behavior, I guess, that we stop wearing it, we toss it away and we dispose of it, but also because of, uh, you know, quality being, uh, being subpar and deteriorating quickly over time. Mm -hmm. So what I'm getting at is that with wholesale, you need a, a visual distinction. And we aren't really a fashion brand. We're, we're, mm -hmm. We create apparel, but we're not creating fashion. So um, if you're selling wholesale, you need something visual to, to, to distinguish yourselves from, from the rest, whereas our garments will at face value, look the same as any other basics brand. Uh, and we can't rely on wholesalers to tell our story the way that we think that we're able to. Is the quality very different? Because uh, another guest here at the Wimlick show was uh, the founder of Son of a Tailor, uh, which you probably know. And I'm wearing a lot of Son of a Tailor stuff uh, nice. uh, uh, because I don't like the T-shirts from Pete and Kloppenburg and the others. <laughs> so compared uh, to your quality, do, does such a business uh, aim for like the same quality or is it still super unique? Um, so Son of a Tailor does a great job, first of all. Um, I think their historical focus has been on size and fit even more than ours since yep. they have a, a made-to-measure system. Uh, I think they have standard sizing now too. Um, but um, I've only felt and tried them. I haven't actually worn their T-shirts. So um, shame on me for not doing market research properly. But No, uh, just was my, 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 my personal question. I'm always looking out for, for me, like from a man's perspective, so... I would rather go uh, uh, for your approach or Sandra Taylor approach because I don't like to buy stuff. Yeah. So if I, whenever I find a source of stuff where I can uh, uh, do my repeat buying, I don't know if it's like once a year or like, like once every five years, I'd like to reduce my uh, my buying. Yeah. Uh, uh, work, which is very different from from like female buying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're bang on in the target group. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, is that the reason why you guys don't do female? collections? Well, uh, I guess it started because we are creating the clothing that we couldn't find and, and sort of our compass in which clothing to create 
um, with our own within our own interest, really. And since we're not school designers or, or sort of um, fashion people, um, it, it would have been unintuitive to start with with female clothing. Then, of course, the male buying behavior, uh, and this actually goes into your your other question is optimal for our business model because if you find your way into the heart of the male customer via the perfect Oxford shirt, the perfect T-shirt, the perfect pair of chinos, then um, you'll stick around as a customer because, yes, we aren't as, in general, stereotypically speaking, we aren't as interested in um, in shopping. We just want to find, you know, uh, a one-stop shop for for perfect perfect essentials. And from a unit economics and customer acquisition point of view, and that is, of course, uh, fantastic because if we manage to acquire you as a customer and you're happy with your product, um, then there's a lock-in effect, of course, with the size system, which is quite unique. And uh, you will, uh, you know, uh, you will return uh, with, a, with a very high um, likelihood, which means that, you know, with, with our uh, loyalty numbers and our repeat purchase rate, the uh, customer acquisition cost is actually... Um, um, you know, really, uh, in the, of the lifetime of the customer, uh, a fraction. Are you are you able to um, earn money with the first purchase from a customer? That's always our goal. So um, we've just, since we are uh, we have had two rounds of, um, of funding, um, but no, you know, huge VCs coming in. Um, so and we don't want to sort of. We're very careful when it comes to investments and when it comes to funding, and we want to grow organically as much as possible. And so our goal is always to break even on the first order of a new customer. Um, and that's where we, we put our, um, you know, um, target uh, customer acquisition cost. I always, uh, I also talk with, uh, with, uh, with Jess from uh, Son of a Tailor um, about, like, the standard buying behavior from customers. And he said, okay, because of the this made-to-measure system uh, was developed over time, I think he initially started with, like, a system where you would have to put in 40 different variables. For, right. Like, T-shirt was too much. Now it's about, like age, size, uh, sporty, not sporty, like only like three, four variables uh, and it only leads to like 5% returns because it's not fitting. Mm. Um, so what is your, like your, if I would choose now a t-shirt here and I see there's only extra large and usually choose extra, extra, extra large. So uh, what is your return rates and what would, let's assume I, I, I'm going to be happy with the first mm. t-shirt. Uh, what would my customer journey would look like after the first purchase? Right. Um, so the, the T-shirt is a, a, a normal entry-level product for us, or so sort of the the entry-level drug to the Asket, uh, the gateway drug to the Asket universe. Mm -hmm. um, and from there on, um, uh, the normal behavior is that you'll repurchase again. You'll try something. You maybe buy one or two T-shirts to start out with, figure out your size. Then you'll test that because our customers are in general quite picky, so they're not going to buy a ton the first time around. They're going to want to wear and wash and test it and evaluate the product. And only when they feel comfortable, they will return. So within a few months, then they'll return um, with a higher value basket. And in general, um, we'll have over the course of 12 months, we'll have a 60% uh, repeat purchase rate from uh, new customers. Where do customers initially come from? Because since you're not present in wholesale, how do they find you? Yeah. And at 700 uh, came through Kickstarters. <laughs> exactly. So the first That was one of them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first 700 came from Kickstarter. Um, we, we've had kind of a, a textbook organic growth approach from the start. So our belief, um, we have this little uh, model that we show to all our new staff when they, when they start, which is our, our religion, which has uh, you know, two fundaments. One is product. Um, with our strive for perfection, with a permanent collection, 
instead of adding new products, we perfect the ones we have. And with the direct-to-consumer model, we can take in feedback from the customers that we have. Our customers are in general very engaged and loyal, so they'll give a lot of feedback. So we perfect our products to theoretical perfection. That, in turn, combined with a fantastic customer service and customer experience, should leave to, uh, lead to um, high customer satisfaction and um, propensity to recommend, or NPS, essentially. So with product and um, with uh, customer experience, we aim for the highest possible recommendation um, propensity or NPS and try to build this as a word-of-mouth model with sort of a, a snowball effect. Of course, you need to start with some customers from the beginning and 700 aren't really enough to make a dent. Um, and so we've worked very much with PR, um, a little bit with influencers um, to sort of get that snowball rolling in the first place. And I'd say only about two years ago or so, we started to invest in performance marketing. Initially, we had the idea that, you know, everything that doesn't add value to the product must go. You know, fashion shows, big retail stores, wholesale, uh, all of that fat has to be cut out. What do you think about pop-up uh, stores? Pop-up stores are interesting, but they're an administrative nuisance. Um, You've tried a few, didn't you? Yeah, we've tried. It's hard to scale. It's great in the beginning. If you don't have a space to actually meet your customers, it's fantastic to meet and engage with your customers. Um, uh, but it's very hard to scale um, and, and do and do properly. There's a lot of admin. Uh, and then, of course, you have service providers that might provide spaces with staff, but then it's not your own staff. You don't get enough time to train them. Um, it's interesting, but it's tough. And, and on the uh, uh, search engine uh, advertisement, what kind of keywords are you aiming for? Is it then sustainable fashion or something like that? So we actually don't do any SEM at the moment, apart ah. from brand search, so just to make sure we rank. Let me search. This yeah, try that out. Let's look what comes up. Grüne Wiese minus shop.de, like green, green field shop. Right. Hagar.com. Right. Ever heard of that? Uh, no. It might be um, Amazon. Uh, always Hagar stuff. So you, know, um, you get the German results. Too. Yeah, I think you're getting German results. No, there's all, no, 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 no. Only uh, like one or two German results. Ah, okay. Uh, but we actually don't do. Um, we don't compete for generic um, keywords um, since we're still a small brand. Uh, we've decided to uh, only secure our own sort of brand um, keywords. And uh, so, in terms of performance marketing, um, what we're investing in is predominantly paid social, um, and and that's something that we've only been doing for the last two years or so. So. What I was saying before was that we had this idea that we're not going to pay for marketing at all from the start. Very sort of uh, yeah, um, naive. Uh, and it worked in the beginning, but then eventually you want that snowball to grow a little bit quicker. Uh, with growth, you gain influence. You can work better with your factories and whatnot. Uh, so um, uh, growth, by all means, is, is good, but it's not our sort of main uh, proxy for success. What, what, what is paid social in your terms? Is it like paid Facebook ads exactly. or is it influencer marketing? Uh, no, it's um, paid Facebook and paid Instagram. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, those two. So paid Instagram ads or influencer Paid Instagram ads. Okay. And influencers, should, isn't that like a vertical that should work for you? Because there's a lot of like influencers that should that want to uh, uh, improve the world. And uh, this is like that's true. <laughs> held their aims. That's true. Yeah. They, they, they travel the world in jet planes improving the world. No, I'm kidding. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism here in Sweden too. Only, right, the, to only the very successful ones. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we, we did start with influencers uh, quite early on actually. Um, The idea was that we we didn't actually we don't actually pay uh, we didn't have any money to pay our influencers so they got products and it was entirely unconditional so you know if you like the product uh, we hope you start wearing it maybe it'll end up in your Instagram feed 
Uh, and if you like what we do, we do, maybe you'll give us a shout out every now and then and support us. Uh, and that worked really well in the beginning. And this was around 2016, so a year in when we started trying that. And this was before Instagram ads. Um, so the algorithm worked very differently. There was no algorithm. It was a chronological feed. If you scrolled to the bottom, you would let, literally mm. stop where, you know, where you'd been last time. And at that time, um, influencer marketing was tremendous. And you know, companies like Danny Wellington built their entire companies uh, on influencer marketing because uh, Instagram hadn't monetized um, yeah, marketing yet. Um, but then in summer 2016, that happened. In, uh, Instagram um, was bought by Facebook and launched ads and everything changed. Um, so we still work with influencers, uh, but it's more to get nice content, to get feedback and to make sure that our products are seen in the right community. Um, Question on the brand. I mean, you, you almost started out as a non-brand, letting yeah. the product speak for itself. How desirable would you say is the Asket brand today? Well, I mean, if you look at it in terms of the potential market out there, I mean, we're uh, we, we're tiny. Uh, we're tiny. So if you look at um, in terms of brand awareness, um, we actually did our first little uh, little study here in, in the Stockholm area to try to measure a, a campaign. We did this fall with our 100% traceable Merino. And um, I'm blaming the sample not being big enough, but <laughs> there was actually <laughs> the, what's it called? The uh, spontaneous brand uh, mentioning of Asket was 0%. Um, so we're still small. Uh, I would say that that's not entirely representative. That was in Stockholm uh, in general. Um, we can see now that our we are being increasingly recognized. Uh, people coming through us. Uh, you hear a lot of people talking about us without actually knowing us. Uh, we've had a lot of press in Sweden. Mm -hmm. So um, we're getting there, but we're definitely more of a niche brand mm -hmm. for the enthusiasts still. And, and, and wouldn't it make sense for like uh, some of the standard um, fashion labels like H&M or Pieken Kloppenburg or uh, um, um, you name it, to buy such a thing like ask it for like internal greenwashing mm. to have at least like two, three, four percent of the uh, uh, garment uh, produced in a way that is really sustainable and reliable yeah. just to feed that to press and yeah. then go on with uh, selling like five euro t-shirts. So it's because um, the, what, what you're describing actually, uh, though of course there are some niches and some PR uh, stuff you can do, but it's I think it's going to be harder and harder and harder to tell the story again mm. because you really rely on PR and worth of mouth. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, and you need this kind of growth injection on a mm. daily basis to keep your employees happy, to keep like money uh, um, flowing in. And uh, and as you were saying, you're not able to sell via Pieken Kloppenburg yeah. or others, even if you want to, because there's no business case yeah. uh, um, behind it. There must be a way for them to interact with this kind of niche because mm. if customers are asking for the same level of sustainable clothes, if there's more and more uh, 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 press stuff is going on, that there's like... Uh, factories in yeah. Bangladesh uh, burning yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So it's, it's it's something really really needed from these uh, bigger companies. So Definitely. and I and I, I I would bet there's some bigger companies already locked on your door. So and how this is talks go? Yeah. No. Um, I mean the, the the fashion industry is really in trouble. Particularly the fast fashion industry is in in trouble as we are now on a broader 
level uh, understanding the um, impact of the fashion industry. You know, it accounts for up to 10% of global emissions. Uh, it is, after uh, energy, the dirtiest in, uh, industry in the world, and energy is getting cleaner and cleaner for the day, um, whereas fashion mm-hmm. is just growing and growing and growing without doing much about the problem. Um, so, yeah, uh, fast fashion is in trouble. Fashion in general is in trouble and is being heavily scrutinized. And you can see that, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of good initiatives out there. There's a lot of innovation in the supply chain on how we can reduce water consumption, chemical consumption uh, and whatnot. And you can see how um, the fast fashion chains and the big ones like uh, the H&M group, etc., are launching new brands, uh, one with a striking similar similar name, uh, for instance, um, two years after we launched. And very similar labels. And very similar Full labels, <laughs> exactly. Or, or pretending to have that. At exactly. Uh, so you see that the, you know they are um, trying to meet the the increasing demand for transparency, and, and I hate the word sustainability, so I'm not going to use it. But let's say responsibility uh, in the industry. The problem is that no one of the existing you know incumbents in the industry is ever going to do it wholeheartedly until the financial incentives are there, until there's regulation in place to actually require real traceability, real impact assessment of your products, real responsibility of your uh, supply chain. So um, basically all these initiatives that I'm talking about, you know, of, of improving the uh, marginal improvements of the impact in the supply chain or or launching, you know, got certified uh, T-shirt line here and there, the sum of all these initiatives on a yearly basis is absorbed and offset by the sheer growth of our consumption. So, um, you know, it, it's not making a dent and there's no incentive to really change the status quo for these uh, for these big uh, companies because essentially everything they're doing in terms of R&D is going into trying to, um, you know, invent a, a machine or something that can allow them or a practice or, or a fabric that can allow them to continue to operate as they are right now, uh, which is based on selling clothing that we don't actually need. Yeah. Okay, then, but then I would like to, to ask you a question uh, about the sales strategy from an, like another kind of perspective. I understand that like in brick and mortar environment, there is no business case uh, for like a bigger um, uh, fashion retailer and your brand. But when it comes to their online strategies, um, uh, they can... They can offer actually, uh, uh, and I think H and M wanted to start like in, in marketplace uh, in Sweden here mm-hmm. dog, uh, a couple have, of weeks ago. Yeah, um, Zalando has kind of a marketplace infrastructure, and then you then you say, okay, um, we charge you like five to ten percent uh, um, of the revenue, and within five five ten percent, there's like customer acquisition costs yeah. included, payment, all the stuff you would also pay on your own direct to consumer brand. Is is that something uh, uh, you would uh, you would look deeper into? I think that's uh, that's interesting because um, you know financially it it makes sense. We can see that commission for marketplaces as a customer acquisition cost, um, but we're still posed with the same challenge, which is that our clothing and our our pieces are going to be stand side by side with uh, competing items and seemingly similar items. Okay. Uh, so these platforms don't allow for the same you know for the same storytelling that we can do in our own channels, in our social media, on our website. We actually tried with uh, a fantastic platform, which is called Apumo, a British um, niche um, lifestyle marketplace. Um, and we saw that, you know, it didn't really make a dent. And we just felt that we were undermining our product by being on that platform. And that's a really content focused and, and great platform. We're now working with them again, but on a different model. 
uh, more of a sort of an affiliate test. But 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 I think the selection uh, problem that's only because uh, we are still thinking in the old filters, uh, brand, color, yeah. price, yeah. size, whatever, and this kind of let, let's let's. Let's uh, let's say it's a sustainability filter. Yeah, and uh, there's no um, there's no official uh, rating for it. There's no agency. There's no standard. So everybody's hanging like another hang tag on the fashion, saying it's like green labeled or mm. whatever. But let's assume there's like a standard, and you uh, you're putting together a standard together with like five six other companies, like joining a, a, a forming like a, um, a group of companies mm. um, supporting the standard, saying okay, this is like like. 100% sustainable, and then you can train the customers to use this kind of filter. Saying, okay, mm. how sustainable it should mm -hmm. be? Do you really want to have the um, uh, the people that are producing the initial uh, wool mm. uh, uh, under full price? Mm. So should they also profit from your purchase? Then you have to pay like another three euro extra. Uh, uh, what about the uh, working conditions? Do you want to have like it made in China versus mm. maybe a slightly better country of Vietnam? So yeah. it's another five euro. And uh, if, if you're able to give the people this kind of transparency, mm. even on the bigger platform, such a product could outperform another similar looking product uh, for for uh, less price so that's true um, that's true I think right now the challenge is that you can acquire certificates that have some kind of consumer uh, recognition like GOTS or GOTS uh, or, or um, Fairware Foundation certified um, fair trade etc so there are certain certifications out there that have a certain degree of consumer awareness but we don't necessarily um, we can't wholeheartedly support working in that way because no certificates out there right now actually cover the entire value chain. If you take GOTS, um, that is, uh, you can certify an entire product, but it's mostly about the farms. And so a lot of brands will say that, you know, we have a GOTS certification, but it's really just the farm. And from there on, you know, you dye it black. There's no such thing as an organic black t-shirt. That's not an organic dye stuff, basically. Uh, you can't achieve that organically. Um, or if you look at... GOTS uh, means Global Organic Textile Standard. Exactly. <laughs> I just looked it up, so just... <laughs> For those who didn't know. Yeah, exactly. No, and, and so if you look at certifications out there, we actually spent half a year with a, a master's student helping us research and map all the certifications out there to understand what they actually cover. And each certification covers very different aspects of the supply chain. And um, to us, um, that's a that's a problem because you can then um, acquire this certification and um, you know reach and you know an esteem of sustainability, let's say, uh, without actually having to bother the full picture. And then you just print GOTS on your T-shirt uh, with a huge ugly print on it that's going to go out of trend uh, the next season, um, and um, and that doesn't really make a difference. What makes a difference is looking at the entire value chain, making sure that every single processing location mm -hmm. is working well. Mm -hmm. And currently, we feel that the best way to do that is to go there and visit these places ourselves. But then you have to form your own standard. Then right? we have to form our own standard, exactly. Then we have to form our own standard. And that's exactly what we did with our full traceability standard that we launched in 2017, where we committed to making our entire portfolio of clothing 100% transparent. We break down the materials into every single location and trace it back all the way to the uh, to the wool, to the cotton. But this standard is only applies to your uh, your uh, value chain, right? You're not able to give the standard or to, to lend the standard to another company. You don't have, like, officers that could no. go to H&M and say, okay, this product line is 
ASCET certified. The FD, uh, the ASCET certified, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe that's something we can do in the future. But uh, no, um, we haven't done that yet. Um, it, it's... Um, I think it would be interesting uh, and we're more and more looking into how we can get involved in policy and um and in yeah in policy in general on national level and also EU level um but um you know we're 12 people we need to focus on uh, on the core mm-hmm. of our business at mm-hmm. the end of the day when it comes to the whole debate about sustainability in fashion do you feel that it's picking up more and more? Because my perception, at least, is, and I'm not a fashion expert at all, that in the past, the debate has been much more focused around human rights. Yeah. The conditions under which textiles are produced, garments are produced, yeah. child labor, yeah. burning factories with sort of poorly paid seamstresses. And now it's becoming more into, or it's moving more to the direction of, hey, it actually takes several hundred liters of water to produce a single uh, pair of jeans, yeah. for example. Is that picking up? Or Thousands, is it, actually. Uh, is it? Really? Yeah. Wow. Maybe, maybe worse than I thought. Is, do you feel like that's picking up or is it something that's currently quite hyped sort of in the in the age of uh, Greta Thunberg? Mm. No, way? I think that it is, you know, uh, a lot of things are, uh, are colliding and there's, um, you know, some people call it a macro trend and I think that's the worst thing you can say that sustainability is a trend. It's an absolute necessity to take responsibility and clean up our act uh, in general. But um, with that said, there's a lot going on right now, obviously. So you have, you know, Greta Thunberg on the one hand as an ambassador that has exploded uh, the past years. And uh, you have the whole, um, you know, um, climate change debate that has also um, partly thanks to Greta um, become a lot bigger uh, and more mainstream. Um, and so um, the fashion industry then, you know, hasn't been able to stay in its hiding. Uh, and as we look at what actually has an impact in the sort of modern uh, Western lifestyle, clothing uh, inevitably is one of the worst uh, categories and fashion industry has become more and more scrutinized now. Um, and as you said, it was initially more human rights questions, uh, not enough at the time even. It's mm-hmm. almost ironic that, you know, we had in 2011, I believe, the Rana Plaza building collapse, killing 1,100 people in Bangladesh, creating the T-shirts that we hear in Sweden, in Stockholm, in, in Germany, in Berlin, wherever, wear every day. Um, and that just sort of died out. And mm-hmm. only now that we can feel temperatures changing, literally, we can feel it ourselves, is the debate really picking sparking up. and picking mm-hmm. up. Only when we can feel it ourselves, which is sad. But um, nevertheless, it's good that the debate is here now. And I think one of the most um, representative KPIs of you know, seeing this debate increase is that the media landscape within fashion, which traditionally has been built on you know, advertising money from the fashion industry, is actually starting to uh, turn on its own practices and starting to report mm-hmm. and take responsibility for reporting on the practices of the fashion industry uh, and its impacts. All the global conferences are only about it. And, um, and yeah, there's a lot more scrutiny now. So it's mm-hmm. definitely, uh, it's peaking. So basically increased environmental consciousness is contributing to, to your brand and to your sales, I would imagine. That's true if you see it that way, cynically, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, uh, definitely. But um, how, what, what, what is the next step in terms of growth mm-hmm. for Askit? Yeah. I mean, you're selling more or less globally. Yeah. I mean, you ship globally. Um, you said Germany was your largest market with 35% yeah. share. Um, do you have any focused markets or focused channels moving on? What are, what are the plans? So uh, we're still focusing on Europe. There's a lot 
left in, in, in Europe and our you know focal markets are uh, Germany, UK and Sweden. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just moved our warehouse from Estonia to Germany actually so we're better able to cater to the German market um, which uh, has been a big improvement. Um, and but as I said before, you know we're still so small. Um, there's so much left to do in uh, in Europe and we try to from the beginning we've had kind of a you know hit as many sto- birds as possible with one stone philosophy so, Everything in English, uh, one payment method, uh, Klarna checkout, basically catering to all markets. Which August, by the way, launched in Klarna. Exactly. So, <laughs> so if, if I wouldn't have chosen culture. that, it would have been bad. Um, one shipping solution, one central warehouse, trying to keep it as simple as possible. Um, and um, there's still a lot, lot left to do before we will st- you know, stray away from that and start mm-hmm. opening local warehousing in North America or, or in Asia, for instance. Um, so with that being said, the U.S. is a super interesting market. Uh, 10% of our sales is actually from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, without us doing anything there. Uh, so it's just word of mouth growing. And you ship from your warehouse in Germany then? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, how, what is like the delivery uh, time then from like a, for a standard purchase from the U.S. market? It's actually extremely fast. And uh, I mean, it's nothing that we like to boast about because it is uh, the only way to get it there. Um, in a somehow sort of commercial way is by express. So it's air freight um, because you can't take stuff there by land um, and boat wouldn't be possible for individual purchases. Um, but that means it's actually really, really fast. So um, you can get your parcel uh, in under 24 hours to the U.S. West Coast, um, actually, in oh, un- wow. from ordering. Really? Uh, so it's brutally fast, but uh, one of the aspects, of course, of um, you know wh- one of the other criteria we look at when it comes to setting up local warehousing is, of course, the customer experience, but also reducing our overall uh, impact and, and reducing air freight. So we actually mm-hmm. stopped offering free um, express shipping um, and increased the so there's no sort of free overvalue for express shipping uh, for us. But, but like instead um, uh, growing your company like in the standard direction, growing like more warehouses, uh, more assortment, like a uh, better uh, fulfilling infrastructure for North America, um, you could also go the way like in five years becoming like the uh, the um, uh, the news uh, yeah the group who's setting like the standard, selling like a technology or uh, that helps like other companies to control the value chain mm. um, which it, it, because you know so much now yeah. stuff that usually the other companies just don't know you have like a, a processes in place that help you to control the standards so and like from investors perspective they look outside so what could make the like the biggest impact not only like for the environment but also like for European L mm. the track could also lead into such an uh, 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 in, in such such a direction because you wouldn't need so many people yeah and you are, are you you're getting away from competing uh, on google or instagram yeah. for uh, sustainable t-shirt uh, uh, keywords yeah. Uh, yeah stuff so and from what you have learned so far in the last like five years and from uh, uh, and from uh, what you've learned now within like the last 12 months of uh, greta and all the other stuff so is is this a possibility to move in that direction i think it is um And I think it is, I mean, as I mentioned early on, we've pivoted from being a product-centric and product-driven company really to a a mission-driven company. And explicitly, our mission is to end the era of fast consumption. Uh, We want, uh, we we have something called the pursuit of less. 
helping us all um, do more with less, essentially. And our domain is clothing. That is where we are really good, creating the best possible clothing out there, which becomes the vehicle to reduce our wardrobes. Um, and uh, in the bigger picture of that vision, you know... It's, it's also bad for uh, IKEA furniture building. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But, and in the bigger picture of this vision... Um, Of course, we want to do a lot more than only having really, really good clothing and help, helping people find the right clothing, taking care of it longer. Um, and so we're working a lot within the areas of thought leadership, you know, trying to work with panel discussions, keynotes at conferences, getting out there and leading by example. We're so small. We can't lead by, by you know, practice or by actually uh, dominating and changing the, the volumes, the transactional mm -hmm. volumes in the industry. But what we know that we're doing already, which is so rewarding, is that We are changing people's habits and we are actually um, sparking a debate. Uh, so, you know, I've had conversations over lunch with Philippa K., one of the Sweden's biggest um, fashion brands, the CEO, and they're eager to understand how we work and how they can improve and become better. And if there's any of our ideas and thoughts that they can adopt. And I think that's just fascinating. And, and we're super eager to open up and, and be transparent and help Uh, and help shape um, uh, the the direction of this industry, and we can't do it yet by by you know uh, by practice because we're too small. Mm -hmm. But we're already doing it um, by leading by example, um, and that's definitely something that we're going to continue to focus on because you know time is of the essence. We're in a in a pickle to be honest as a global society, and uh, Asket can't sort of do it alone. We need to do it together. Um, and that's one of the most rewarding areas of my sort of day-to-day -day activity is to actually interact and talk to to other uh, key people in the industry. Yeah. So when I look from, so, so if I have to wrap it up a little bit, so I, I understand your, your your core business is in a good shape. Uh, it's, it's not going to be like a hundred million euro revenue business in two years. Uh, not in two years. Uh, no. Uh, from now, from my perso personal point of view, I'd. I'd rather go for a company that is setting like the ASCIT standard in, uh, <laughs> uh, compared to selling more ASCIT uh, T-shirts. Seems more uh, scalable, but, perhaps. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, and, and it's pretty cool <laughs> in terms of impact. <laughs> from, from, yeah, from, yeah, and it's mm -hmm. just because it's the only way how to how to uh, how to accelerate um, um, this uh, this whole stuff. I definitely will uh, uh, will buy some uh, some of your stuff from uh, uh, from uh, from the website. And if the, is there is there anything only if you, you need them though? Only if you need if, them. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you have some some vectors that are not working in your favor. <laughs> uh, is there anything you want to reach out to the, the, our German speaking uh, listeners uh, here now? You have the time. Oh wow, um, uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess uh, thank you for you your support. Can, you can push out voucher codes uh, <laughs> always. Uh, They don't well, do voucher codes. No, though. we've never, we've never, we don't do discounts. We've never had a sale, and no. uh, since we started the um, back in, in 2015, actually, um, uh, to our German audience in specific, um, no, I think we're just super thankful for for the support. I mean, we've uh, Germany exploded last year for us. We had. Uh, Phenomenal um, presence in some of the leading newspapers in Germany, in Süddeutsche Zeitung and Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, and um, that has really sort of um, propelled awareness in in Germany. So keep recommending us. 
Thanks a lot Excellent. for being our guest here. Thanks, Thanks for joining. Thanks so much, guys. Great. Hope you enjoyed the episode with Askit. And of course, from here on out, no one is allowed to buy fast fashion anymore. It's only Askit and Askit.com. Really important. Um, next week, we actually stay, stay true to the topic of fashion. And we're going to be meeting an umbrella brand uh, who are looking to establish umbrellas as an accessory produced in the last remaining factory in Sweden. Um, so very much looking forward to hopefully see you again next week when we talk to Karl Dank. Yeah.